Hello, everyone, and welcome to Crush Course, the podcast for the wine curious. I'm your host, Sarah, coming to you from Sonoma Valley, California, and today we're learning all about wine history. Wine was never really part of the history books. Even when I was at university studying winemaking, we didn't spend a lot of time learning about how wine evolved, its history, and how it affected us as a culture. But today, we're going to cover all that and plenty more. So let's get to it, shall we? The history of wine is as long as the history of human civilization. Long before the automobile, before the Iron Age, even before the wheel, there was wine. The first time our ancestors drank wine was likely by accident. After all, how were they to know what would happen to grapes if they were to sit and ferment for a time? But once they tried it, they were hooked. Our ancestors couldn't get enough of the stuff, and they shaped society around it. They planted vines to have wine wherever they settled. They created trade systems to get wine all over the world. And they developed new branches of science to better understand how it's made and how to make it better. The history of wine is the history of ourselves. While wine has been a part of our culture for millennia, it's only been in the last few centuries that we've really developed a knack for the craft. Even before our ancestors had settled down into established communities, they were harvesting wild grapes to ferment into alcoholic beverages. When they finally transitioned from hunting and gathering to agriculture, grapevines were actually one of the first crops to be domesticated This was somewhere around 6,000 to 7,000 BCE. The first ancient civilization to really contribute to wine production were the ancient Egyptians, who rose to power in North Africa around 3,000 BCE. Not only did they greatly expand our understanding of viticulture, the actual growing of grapevines, but they were also the first to press grapes to extract the juice from the berry for fermentation. While it can't truly be confirmed, I would have to assume that before that, whole clusters of berries were just left to sit in a fermenting stew, and the skins and stems would only be removed after the fermentation was complete. The color of that wine must have been incredible, but my mouth gets a little dry just thinking about how intense and tannic it must have been. The Egyptians were also the first to establish wine trade. They were pretty well situated for it along the banks of the Nile River. Many historians agree that much of the structure of our modern economy can be traced back to the wine trade established by the ancient Egyptians. After the ancient Egyptians came the Greeks, who continued to expand the wine trade throughout the Mediterranean. But it was the Romans who really established viticulture in mainland Europe. At the height of the Roman Empire, Romans had infiltrated Europe as far north as England and as far east as Syria, and wherever they established themselves, they established grapevines. They had become very fond of wine, but there was another major factor that drove their consumption. Both at home and abroad, the Romans were so concerned about water quality that they preferred to drink wine rather than water for fear of falling ill. It makes a lot of sense. The alcoholic content of wine even in ancient Rome, was high enough that no harmful bacteria or other microorganisms could survive. So, in a way, it was really quite smart. And quite delicious. 
It was estimated that an average Roman citizen would consume roughly a bottle of wine every day, but much, much more for holidays celebrating Bacchus, the Roman god of wine and fertility, who had quite the reputation for throwing epic parties. So if you ever need an excuse to lounge around in a toga and drink wine all day, you can just say you're paying homage to Bacchus. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire, circa 476 AD, Europe suddenly found itself once again separated and ruled by various peoples. In what would one day become France, the territory was controlled by a mixture of Visigoths, Franks, and Burgundians. If that last name sounds a bit familiar, it's because the region of Burgundy was named after the original kingdom founded by the Burgundians. The borders aren't quite the same, but the thought was nice. Then we see the rise of Charlemagne. While this medieval king most notably spread Christianity throughout the Western world, he also played a key role in spreading the cultivation of grapevines. First in France, and later in Germany, he selected only the highest quality grapevines and established them in regions that he thought would provide the ideal growing conditions. Charlemagne can be credited with cultivating grapevines throughout Europe, but monks are the ones to thank for establishing winemaking in the region. Abbeys weren't just places of worship, they were also wineries in the Middle Ages. Here, monks received the fruit, processed it, and fermented it, and then kept it for themselves or sold it to the communities surrounding the abbey. Throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, wine was the top driver for the expansion of global trade. Folks just couldn't get enough of it. When colonialism came about in the 15th century, and European powers started spreading across the globe, wine started spreading too. English colonists brought grapevines with them to the American colonies, as well as to Australia. The Spanish brought grapevines with them as they explored the Americas. And the Dutch, who colonized South Africa, brought grapes with them in hopes of avoiding the shipping costs of bringing wine all the way from continental Europe. A quick note about the difference between Old World and New World wine. If you've heard it before in wine conversation, I'm sure it sounded like some strange J.R.R. Tolkien reference. When we talk about Old World wines, we are specifically talking about continental Europe, where viticulture and winemaking was established by the Greeks, the Romans, and the monarchs of the Middle Ages. Think France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, Italy, as well as some Eastern European countries. New World refers to the countries that were then colonized by these European powers and have only been producing wine in the last three centuries or so. North and South America fall into this category, as well as Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. Now, back to the history. Then the 19th century came around and things really started to pick up. For one thing, we developed a better understanding of microbiology. Before this century, no one really understood why or how you got wine. All they knew was that if you mashed up the grapes and let them sit for a few weeks, you'd be left with a delicious and intoxicating beverage. It's hard to figure out how to make wine better if you don't understand how it's made. While there were dozens of scientists during this time that were searching for answers to these questions, one of them really stood out. Perhaps you've heard of him before. It's a Mr. Louis Pasteur. He was a French scientist and microbiologist who is most often associated with pasteurization. 
This is the superheating of a food product to kill off any harmful microorganisms that might be in it. While several scientists before Louis had established the existence of these tiny little creatures, Louis was the first to associate them with alcoholic fermentation. In his research, he established that yeast were responsible for converting sugar, whether it was in grape juice or beer mash, into alcohol. This was a big deal. For the first time in thousands of years of winemaking, we actually had an explanation for how alcohol is produced. But hold on a second. If we didn't know about the yeast, how were we even able to make wine before this? Well, Louis was wondering the exact same thing. He went into the vineyard, and wouldn't you know it? He found yeast on the grapes. It's almost as if grapes were destined to be made into wine. While Pasteur was figuring out what transformed juice into wine, a historic event was taking place not far away in the Bordeaux region of France. It was the classification of 1855. This grand judgment was conducted at the order of Napoleon III in anticipation of the 1855 Universal Exposition of Paris. Much like the World's Fair, this was France's opportunity to show off all the wonderful exports and creations of the country. So naturally, wine had to be included. Napoleon III asked for wines from Bordeaux producers to be ranked according to quality. The ranking of these estates is still in place today, and bottles from the best of the best are worth hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. While France had always been known for producing the best wines in Europe, by establishing a ranking system, the 1855 classification shifted the public's view on wine. Rather than simply seeing wine as good, it became a question of which wine was best. Wine producers really stepped up their game in response, focusing more on fruit quality, fermentation practices, and cellaring practices. Wine would only get better and better in the future, and all thanks to a little competition. The future of wine was looking bright, so of course that's when everything fell into shambles. First came phylloxera. These tiny little insects were brought to European vineyards not long after the classification of 1855, and quickly proceeded to decimate vineyards across the continent. Grapevines are hardy plants and can often survive and produce fruit for years, even with disease, pests, or nutrient deficiencies. The vine may produce fewer grapes and of lower quality, but the plant will survive. That's not the case with phylloxera. You see, these bugs attack the roots of the vine and create these bumpy masses called galls. These galls are like clots in an artery. No nutrients and no water can be taken up to the vine, basically strangling the plant from underground. Once phylloxera was in a vineyard, it was essentially a death sentence. There wasn't a region of Europe unaffected by phylloxera, with most areas suffering near total losses of their vineyards. It took years for entomologists to figure out that it was phylloxera causing this damage, but once they figured it out, they found a solution. Ironically, they came from the same place. You see, phylloxera had first come to Europe via contaminated cuttings of grapevines from the southeastern United States. There, phylloxera was commonplace, and so vines had developed a resistance to the pest. Even if it was present in a vineyard, it really wouldn't harm the vine. 
Once it was determined that Phylloxera was responsible for destroying European vineyards, they went to America for these pest-resistant rootstocks and brought them back to Europe. After a little bit of trial and error and a bit of legislation, European viticulturalists were able to use American rootstocks in their vineyards. To do this, the bottom half, the rootstock, of an American grapevine was grafted onto the top portion, the trunk, of a long-used, long-beloved European varietal. Basically, everything below ground, the roots which soaked up the water and the nutrients from the soil, came from the American grapevine, whereas everything above ground, the trunk, the leaves, the fruit, came from the European varietal. When I did this in school, we basically cut one side down to a point and cut one end down the middle. You then slid them together kind of like a plug into a socket and wrapped it with some sort of tape while the wounds healed, binding the two halves together. It was a remarkable advancement in viticulture, and it saved the industry. American rootstocks are still used across the world today as a means of protecting vines from phylloxera, as well as a variety of other grapevine pests and diseases. Despite the tragedy of the phylloxera epidemic, it brought about one of the most important developments in the history of viticulture. The 20th century promised to be the best era yet for wine, but one thing after another slowed the industry for the first part of the century. World War I broke out in 1914, and as with any war, unnecessary spending was slashed, and this included wine and other luxury items. The world rejoiced at the end of the war, but budgets were still tight. Then, in the United States, the 18th Amendment was passed, effectively prohibiting the production, sale, and consumption of any alcoholic beverages. As we all know, where there's a will, there's a way. Just because it was illegal doesn't mean that Americans went teetotal. Bootlegging became a booming industry overnight. Bathtub gin and moonshine supplied underground speakeasies where Americans were itching to celebrate the end of a horrendous war and a booming economy. During this time, wine production fell by the wayside. American wineries struggled to stay afloat now that their production was deemed illegal. Most of the wineries that survived during this era were supplying wine for Catholic churches. Consuming wine for religious practices was one of the few loopholes in the 18th Amendment. Another cheeky little loophole in the amendment was that vineyards could produce and sell grape juice and grape concentrate, so long as they sold it for non-alcoholic consumption. Wineries didn't want to rip up their precious vineyards as they, like most of America, believed prohibition would be repealed soon enough. So instead of letting the fruit rot on the vine, they took it and started producing wine bricks. Wine bricks are exactly what they sound like. They are compressed grape skins, roughly the size and shape of a brick, which came with an explicit warning on the label. It basically said, do not put in water and let ferment for two weeks because then you will have made wine. They totally did that on purpose, and it was quite clever. They knew that people wanted wine, but by doing it in this way, it saved them from getting in any legal trouble. Many historians agree that wine bricks saved the California wine industry, and ferried it through the end of Prohibition. The Great Depression and World War II once again slashed frivolous spending, but then came the 1950s, and with it, the beginning of the Great Age of Consumerism. 
folks had money and they wanted to spend it on nice things. And one of those things was fine wines. For centuries, wine had been the beverage of the upper classes, the folks who could afford to import it from Europe. But now, the average American household could afford it, and they bought it like crazy. And so we come to the beginning of California wine. For much of its agricultural history, California wine grapes weren't really considered to be of the same quality as French or other European grapes. And so naturally it was assumed that California just couldn't make good wine. Almost seems silly to think that once upon a time, no one believed in California wine. But California winemakers were determined to prove their rivals overseas wrong. And they had the chance to do it in the Judgment of Paris in 1976. This wine tasting turned the world upside down. Not only were the judges not able to tell a difference between a French and California wine, but they awarded first place in both red and white categories to California producers, specifically Chateau Montalena for their Chardonnay and Stag's Leap for their Cabernet Sauvignon. The wine world was aghast. Someone beat the French, who had been making wine since the Romans? It was incredible. And it cemented California's future as a respected wine region. We wouldn't be here today without the hard work of those folks back in 1976. Here in California wine country, we owe practically everything to their victory. And it only got better from there. Across the globe, viticulturalists and winemakers were constantly chasing better quality, higher yields, and quicker production. Wine became more and more popular amongst the masses, which just drove winemakers to do better and make more of it. Interest in old world wines was rekindled, and new world regions saw immense booms in establishing vineyards and wineries to keep up with demand. We saw the rise of major wine companies like Gallo, Trincaro, and Franzia, whose sole mission was to produce high-quality wines at an affordable price for consumers. Wine was booming, and nothing was going to stop it. Today, the advancements in technology and education have brought wine production to an all-time high in terms of quality, and it's never been easier to find a bottle that suits your liking. While we are producing more and better wine than ever before in human history, there seems to be an ever-growing divide between consumers, with high-end collectors on one end of the spectrum and the average consumer on the other. In the last decade, a significant shift has occurred in the wine market, particularly driven by millennials and their tastes. While former generations were drawn to higher bottle prices and the allure of historic estates, Younger wine drinkers are more concerned with sustainable production, minimal additives, and a funner, more lighthearted approach to wine. And I have to say, I'm all here for it. In the future, I'm sure we will see changes in the wine we drink as we adapt to drier, hotter climates, as well as the taste preferences of younger generations as they come into drinking age. Wine isn't going anywhere, but where it will lead us in the future, we will just have to wait and see. And now it is time for the wine of the week. I don't know about you, but I am pretty much done with summer and its heat. This happens every year. It hits September and I am ready for rain and cold weather and nights by the fire. As I fantasize about the coming cooler seasons, I am starting to lean towards big, rich red wines again. I love whites and rosés, but I'm craving something with a little bit of an oomph. 
This week's wine of the week is the Portrait Red Blend from Ellers Estate in North Napa Valley. A very near and dear friend of mine worked at Ellers for over a decade, and in that time he got quite a collection of their wines. I'm talking like a whole Harry Potter under the stairs closet of a wine cellar. And in his infinite kindness, he gifted me several bottles from his stash, one of them being the Portrait, which is easily my favorite so far. It's a blend of three red varietals, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Merlot. It's got plenty of structure, so it doesn't feel like water on your tongue, but it's still smooth and elegant and packed full of dark fruit character. It's definitely a little on the higher side in terms of price. It retails at $65, but I think it is totally worth it, especially if you are looking for a nice bottle for a special occasion like a holiday dinner or a birthday gift. I opened my last bottle with my family just a few months ago. It was the first time we were all able to get together since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. It was a wonderful wine before that dinner, but those memories have made it an all-time favorite. The link to purchase Portrait is in the episode description. I want your questions. I'd love to start answering specific questions you guys have about wine. Please DM me on Instagram at crushcoursepodcast or send them to me via email at crushcoursepod at gmail.com. Hopefully I can start answering them for you guys next episode. Next week, we are finally getting to the good stuff. It's fermentation. I'm going to be dividing fermentation into several episodes over the course of about a month. One for red wine, one for white wine and rosé, and one for sparkling. I think it'll just be easier to break this down into several manageable chunks. That way you guys don't get overwhelmed and I get the chance to dive deep into each individual fermentation style. I'm Sarah, and this has been your crush course on wine history. And until next time, cheers!